Predictions about the future. How safe is your pension? How safe is your bank? The simple answer is that they're as safe as the assets that they're invested in, and those investments are no safer than the global economy. I've started putting together some predictions for next year. The paper is called How Will Climate Change Your Business in 2016? Here's a preview, some thoughts, news and ideas which will feature in the final version. Is the car industry a good investment after Volkswagen? Or should we be investing in coal, oil or other commodities? Did Goldman Sachs really say we can look forward to oil at $20 a barrel? Should we sell our investments in fossil fuels and put pressure on the producers? Bill Gates doesn't think so. And who was it? who said that prediction is difficult, especially about the future. Hello, this is Anthony Day. It's Friday and this is the Sustainable Futures Show, brought to you as usual without advertising, subsidy or sponsorship. My aim is to bring you news, views and important facts about the sustainability issues which will affect your life, your business and your family. Concerned investors with over £625 billion under management call for greater clarity on emissions lobbying by automobile companies. That's the headline on a press release out this week from responsible investment organisation ShareAction.org. It goes on. A coalition of 19 investors has written to 11 major automobile companies to call for improved reporting of their public policy interventions on emissions standards. The letters to Volkswagen, BMW, Honda, Daimler, GM and the rest request detailed information on the lobbying position they are taking on emissions legislation currently being debated in the US and the EU. Signatories to the letters include AXA investment managers, four Swedish national pension funds, the Environment Agency Pension Fund and Web Group. This initiative comes in the wake of the recent diesel emissions scandal that exposed Volkswagen's use of software to beat emissions and air quality tests. This has led to broader scrutiny of the relationship between automobile companies and regulators as legislative standards are currently being debated in the EU and US on transport emissions. Seb Bellow, partner and head of research at Web Group, that's W-H-E-B group.com, says, The Volkswagen crisis has helped to uncover the unhealthily close relationship between the automotive industry and regulators, particularly in Europe. In the long run, this undermines the competitiveness of the European car makers, and we believe it is in the interests of investors and the environment alike to gain a better understanding of what goes on behind closed doors. Interviewed on the BBC Radio 4 Today programme, Seb Bellow said that the VW scandal had had a major effect on the company's share price, and he was concerned that the failure of organisations to address sustainability issues threatened their value as investments. In fact, VW's share price fell by 38% when the news of the scandal broke, and three weeks on, it has still not recovered. 
Billow said that in his view we had finally reached a tipping point where December's climate change conference in Paris is beginning to get more coverage, costs of renewable energy are falling and becoming competitive, and corporations are realising that they can make money from developing environmental technologies. Green technology is no longer a gesture, it's sensible business, which is why it makes sense, he says, to invest in these new sectors. Australia, on the other hand, is investing in coal. Australia's government has given its approval for one of the world's biggest coal mines to be built by India's Adani Mining in Queensland. Approval is subject to 36 of the strictest conditions in Australian history, according to Environment Minister Greg Hunt. It's not clear whether any of these 36 will prevent the environmental damage caused by burning coal. But of course the coal will be burnt in India. Have they done their sums? First proposed in 2010, the project is apparently worth some 16 billion Australian dollars, which is 12 billion US dollars or 8 billion pounds, and will dig up and transport about 60 million tonnes of coal a year for export mostly to India. The mine will cover an area seven times the size of Sydney Harbour. Hopefully this mine will be completely different from the Isaac Plains Coking Coal mine also in Queensland. Valued at $624 million in 2012, Isaac Plains was sold last July for $1, or as we say in the UK, 48 pence. There has been great difficulty in raising finance for the new mine, and a number of international banks have pulled out. This is partly due to the fact that the mine will be linked to a new port by a new railway, and in order to reach the port, ships will have to pass through the Great Barrier Reef. Opponents warn of the risks of pollution and damage to the reef, which is already under stress caused by climate change. On land, the mine and the railway will threaten endangered species, but the Minister does not see this and the threats to the Great Barrier Reef as sufficient justification for withholding approval. The Australian Conservation Foundation calls the project grossly irresponsible and claims that the mine will produce 128 million tonnes of CO2 a year, which is more than the whole of New Zealand. Would you want your pension fund invested in coal? If it is already invested in coal or oil or other fossil fuels, should you sell out? Should you deprive the operators of the benefit of your savings? Yes, says a growing number of investors, managing some $2.6 trillion at the last count. No, says Bill Gates, at least according to The Guardian, despite a concerted campaign from that newspaper urging the Gates Foundation to dispose of its $1.4 billion holding in fossil fuel companies. Bill Gates calls fossil fuel divestment a false solution and also accuses environmentalists of making misleading claims about the comparative price of solar. But if you read his interview in the November 2015 issue of The Atlantic magazine, that's theatlantic.com, it's clear that Gates has a comprehensive understanding of the problems and his own ideas of how they should be tackled. 
He believes there should be a carbon tax and he believes that the US government should triple its R&D budget for energy research. Imposing technologies which are not as convenient or cost-effective as tried and tested coal, oil or gas will not solve the climate problem. Divestment, selling out investments in fossil fuel companies in order to spur them into behaving differently, is not going to solve the problem. Like many people, Gates sees technological innovation as the solution. Unlike many people, he wants urgent action to stimulate innovation. He's not going to sit around and wait for it to happen. So divestment may not be the answer to the climate change problem. But the question remains, is the fossil fuel industry a good home for your investments and savings? Writing in the Harvard Law Record, third-year students Jonathan Hiles and Ted Hamilton take a different view. One proven method, they say, for raising climate change awareness is fossil fuel divestment. Around the world and right here at Harvard, activists are calling on their institutions to pull all investments from oil, gas and coal companies, adapting a strategy that enjoyed tremendous success in the apartheid and anti-tobacco movements. Divestment sends shock signals through the system, making investors wary of hitching their fortunes to a dangerous product. Yes, as we've seen, investors such as Share Action have reservations about investing in organisations which are environmentally irresponsible. Disinvestment or the threat of disinvestment might make organisations like Volkswagen change their ways. On the other hand, the whole business of coal or oil companies is to produce fossil fuels. It's what they do. If we are to decarbonise our world, they must be eliminated. It is naive to believe that organisations which are the problem will destroy themselves in order to provide the solution. I think I'm with Bill Gates on this one. We cannot afford to waste energy on a divestment campaign. There are more important and more urgent issues to address. Sadly for the students, Harvard University does not share their views. Between 2012 and 2014, the university's fossil fuel holdings increased. According to cleantechnica.com, a group of Harvard University students calling themselves the Harvard Climate Justice Coalition have been fighting a long-running battle to legally force their university to divest its fossil fuel investments. The Harvard Corporation, representing the university, successfully got the court to dismiss the lawsuit brought by the students. However, on the 5th of October, the students filed an appeals brief which included backing from climate scientist James Hansen and the Animal Legal Defence Fund, as well as the full backing of the City of Cambridge home to Harvard University. Surely the time, money and legal fees could be better spent on practical solutions to the problems. Well, if not fossil fuels, should we be investing in other commodities like copper, zinc, gold, other metals and minerals, or grain, agriculture and forestry products? Invest in a company like Glencore, for example. Glencore PLC is an Anglo-Swiss multinational commodity trading and mining company. The company was created through a merger with Xstrata on the 2nd of May 2013. As of 2014, it ranked 10th in the Fortune Global 500 list of the world's largest companies. At the time of the merger, the group's share price stood at 343 pence, and by July 2014, 
it had risen to 377.5 pence. In September this year, it collapsed to 68.6 pence. Since then, it has recovered, but only as far as 120 pence, 64% down on where it was 12 months previously. The company's value has been pushed down by its very high levels of debt and the collapse in demand for commodities, principally from China. China is the largest manufacturing economy in the world and its growth has been slowing down over recent months. Glencore has had to reduce its $30 billion debt by selling off stock and assets, depressing prices even further. From a sustainability point of view, I suppose that this is good news because it slows down consumption of the world's diminishing resources. Doesn't look like a good time to invest in commodities, though. And what about oil, the most widely traded commodity of all? Recently, Goldman Sachs was quoted as predicting that the oil price would fall to $20 a barrel and stay there for several years to come. Things are not quite as simple as that. According to Michael Lynch, writing in Forbes magazine, Forbes.com, Goldman's latest forecast is $45, with the possibility of fluctuations that could take it down to $20. Why? And is this a good thing or a bad thing? A panel of experts interviewed by Bloomberg took the view that cheap oil and cheap petrol could stimulate economic growth and at least in the short term, would be a good thing. Interestingly, there was no suggestion that burning oil was in any way undesirable. In the long term, in fact in the not-so-long term, low oil prices are damaging the US shale industry and driving many operators to bankruptcy. I suppose that means there will be a lot of fracking engineers looking for work. They could come over to the UK and develop our shale oil industry. So why UK shale should be any more profitable than US shale in the face of low oil prices must be open to question. I've addressed the question of why oil prices are so low in previous episodes. Saudi Arabia is determined to retain its share of the oil market. It aims to do this by cutting prices until its new competitors' operations become uneconomic. It cuts prices by creating oversupply and as we've seen, the lower price affects its new competitors, both US shale and Canadian tar sands, both of which cannot be economic below $50 a barrel and generally need a lot more. Reduced demand from China and uncertainty caused by China's falling growth rate also depress the oil price. Low prices suit Saudi's political agenda against rival Iran, which in turn is forced to increase production in order to maintain revenues at the lower price. Not only is production exceeding demand, but strategic stockpiles all over the world are close to capacity. If Saudi stopped pumping tomorrow, this buffer means that prices might not change for months. The question is how long this can go on for, given that Saudi's reserves are not limitless. Nobody really knows. Saudi's financial reserves are not limitless either, and the signs are that the low oil price is beginning to backfire on them. Venezuela and Nigeria are in an even more difficult situation. With economies dependent almost wholly on oil, the low prices are causing serious damage which could spark social unrest. 
The risk to the rest of us in the oil-consuming West is that when Saudi does stop pumping because of geological problems or because it has finally exhausted its reserves or because it simply decides it can no longer take the financial hit, it's likely that prices will climb to levels never seen before. Maybe we should be investing in renewables and designing a world to use energy as efficiently as we possibly can. I've heard it said that it's a good idea to fix the roof while the sun is shining. Prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. Who was it who said that? No, it wasn't Groucho Marx, and it wasn't Yogi Berra. I'll tell you next time. That was the Sustainable Futures Show, and this is Anthony Day. Thank you again to all the listeners across the world, and thank you for your suggestions and ideas. I'm off to arrange some more interviews, and I'll be back next week with the next edition of the Sustainable Futures Show. Have a good week. Bye for now. Thank you.